In the slow climb out of the Great Depression, Saul Alinsky, the American grandfather of community organising, started building broad-based neighbourhood councils so people could improve their lives. The organisation he founded was called the Industrial Areas Foundation. Over 80 years later, it has spread across the world. It operates in over 60 US cities and now exists in the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Rome, Canada, Hong Kong, New Zealand and in Australia. The IAF developed a distinctive way to work with communities. They called it broad-based community organising or just organising. The focus is on relationships, leadership, power, the role of institutions in democracy and action. The IAF follows the tortoise model of change. If you build a network of power right, then you can do much more than if you just run fast and furious at problems. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Mike Geekin, former national co-director of the Industrial Areas Foundation. Today we unpack what is organising. We look at how it's different from other approaches like service delivery or mobilising. And we ask him for some hot takes on the US election, because as this was being recorded in September 2020, the Trump versus Biden election loomed large. Finally, full disclosure, Mike was the person who first introduced me to broad-based community organising, and he ran my first training. Given that I then went on to set up IAF broad-based community organising in Australia, it's worth declaring my predilections in this space. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So, Mike, welcome to Changemaker Chats. Uh, thanks, Amanda. It's, it's great to be here with you. It is wonderful to have you on our show. Now, Mike, one of the things about you is that you uh, describe yourself as an organiser, like an organiser above all else. But for some of our listeners who might not know what that means, you know, like Organiser is sort of an abstract term in a way, and they might think that you're just really good at, you know, folding your clothes and sorting your cupboards. Can you just tell our listeners what an organiser is and why you have chosen to be an organiser and not something else? Sure. Um, And, and, you know, I I often uh, start by saying what an organiser is not. You know, uh, because there's so many misconceptions and, and, and ideas about about that. So, so I see being an organizer is not, I'm not a consultant. I'm not a facilitator. I'm not an advisor. I'm not a do-gooder. I'm not an ideologue. 
and I, I'm not an activist. When I think of myself and I think of what an organizer is, I think of it in three ways. I mean, and the first, the first way is I think an organizer primarily is a talent scout. So before the pandemic, before we were, we could not move around and, and, and do meetings, uh, I'd wake up in the morning and I would see my role that day and every day as, as finding and engaging leaders, uh, people with followings and uh, not people with titles and not people with degrees and not people who are media darlings and not people who are famous but uh, people who, are, uh, who have followings, who are trusted in their community, who are uh, respected by their peers, whether they're neighbors or coworkers or fellow students or fellow teachers. Uh, so the, the first way I think about what an organizer is, is that an organizer is a talent scout. The second way is that an, or- an organizer is someone who is a student and a teacher of power which is a a non-nefarious word uh, described, uh, defined as the ability to act. So what power is, how power works, who has power, how they accrued that power, how they use it, uh, how uh, leaders in a community can, can come together and build their own power to both play defense, protect themselves against those with those who want to take advantage of them and exploit them, but also play offense, uh, how to take their dreams and visions and ways of seeing how their community should function effectively and making them happen. So, so the second you know way I think about it is is an organizer is kind of a lifelong student and teacher of power, and then the third uh, the third part of, of my I, my conception of an organizer is that. An organizer is an agitator. Again, that's in, in kind of the old-fashioned uh, way that a, a washing machine agitates clothes. Uh, an organizer agitates the leaders that he or she works with, pushes them to think about ways of confronting and dealing with uh, issues that have seemed intractable or overwhelming, pushes them to think about the risks that they might take that are calculated risks to get change and to get reactions from people with other power. And then obviously agitating with those leaders, uh, people in the public sector and private sector, and even in the third sector, in the civic sector, where some institutions have become very uh, safe and non-threatening. So putting that all into a maybe a longer sentence, uh, an organizer is a talent scout who both learns and teaches the universals of power and who agitates leaders internally and agitates other power people and other power institutions externally. And so as I've uh, practiced organizing uh, for about 45 years and thought about it, that's why I, I no longer use the term community organizer. I don't think that conveys some of the qualities that, that I've just described. Yes, we organize in and through communities, but we're really organizing in a much broader canvas across a much wider uh, uh, set of sectors in society. So I just describe myself as an organizer or if, uh, if pressed as a power organizer. And, and uh, that self-definition uh, usually gets a, a quizzical look or a lot of questions, and then I'm able to explain it a little more. 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> people go, a power organiser? What, what do you mean, power organiser? But I think it's pretty clear from what you've described. Right. But to me, uh, one of the interesting questions behind that, right, you've been doing this for 45 years and and I have been in the spaces that uh, some of the spaces that you've organised, even right. if briefly. What I'm wanting to find out, though, is you know, t- tell us a little bit about how you came to find and identify with this form of change making. Like how did this uh, definition of organizing grow in you through the experiences that you've had in your life. I was wondering if you might want to share with us a couple of stories across wherever you think is relevant across the breadth and depth of your sure, um, experience. Sure. Well, in a, in a way I got either, I think I got, I, I was, I was fortunate. I got lucky in terms of my experiences very early in life in, in the sense that I got lessons in power at a very early age. So when I was a, a young a young boy in Chicago, ages six, seven, eight, my mother and father uh, bought a tavern, a little local tavern on the corner in our neighborhood, and uh, and ran a tavern. And it was uh, it was a tavern that that whose customers came from the railroad yards and from the factories and uh, from the construction sites in the neighborhood. Uh, these are all. Uh, men and women, uh, men who had been World War II veterans like my father and who had been wounded, who had fought, women who had held the fort locally, uh, who had gone to work during the war, and, and then in many cases, which is uh, often not recognized, continued working when the veterans came back from the war. So these, these were um, seasoned, experienced, strong uh, tough people, and I I uh, admired them and uh, looked up to them, obviously. So one afternoon, and I uh, I was uh, and I would uh, I would be in the tavern because that you know we had no childcare. That my sister and I would be at work with my mom and dad uh, during the day. And one day, a young fellow uh, uh, who was the mafia bagman, uh, which which in the U.S. was the fellow who came in and collected payoffs. Uh, walked in, and he was a young fellow. And uh, when he walked in, all the people in the bar stopped talking. And so this fellow came to the to the bar, uh, put his hand on the bar. My father turned around and opened the cash register and pulled out some bills. I, I didn't know how, mu- how how much it was. Put the bills on the on the bar. The fellow took it and and walked out. And all the time, maybe that took a minute, minute and a half, not much longer than it takes me to tell the story. No one spoke and no one looked up and no one made eye contact. And I was off to the side watching this. And I, uh, I, I was about seven at the time, eight. And I knew I was seeing something. Uh, I was seeing a form of power. Uh, raw, uh, dominant, uh, brutal, if it needed to be. And it made such an impression on me because all the people, my father and my mother and, and, and their peers, who had had such a tough life, really, weathered the depression, fought in the war, struggled with injuries, wounds, were completely stymied by this one young fellow and what he represented. So, you know, as I got older and as I thought about that and 
and began to, you know, went to high school, began reading. I, I, I knew there was a form of power and, and there were many other forms in that neighborhood. Very, very tough place that were that could only be checked by some very strong countervailing forms of power. Uh, not some uh, slogan, not some meritorious policy, not some uh, very idealistic notion. That form of power could only be checked by other, other strong and 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 very well thought out and deep forms of power. So I had that that impression, and and that was reinforced by other experiences as I grew up. So that that was one story. It was kind of my first, probably my my first lesson in unilateral power, dominant power, totalitarian yeah. power, uh, if, if yeah. you will. And within the community, really, within the community, the mafia, right. parts of the community against itself. Absolutely. Know, and, and, wasn't and, and the government um, in that point. And no, no secret about it, Amanda. I mean, um, you know, this was, this fellow had, uh, he didn't try to hide what he was doing, just the opposite uh, he didn't have to say anything. Uh, there's a postscript to that story. Uh, we could not sustain the bar. We were also paying off the police and fire department, by the way, oh. because uh, any any tavern at that time, and maybe much later, and maybe even now in some cases, if you wanted the police to come, you paid off. And if your bar caught fire, uh, you better have paid off the fire department. Oh, we couldn't make all those payoffs, and, 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 and we were going broke. And so we sold the bar. My dad sold the bar to a Greek immigrant fellow. And I remember him coming into our house and sitting at the kitchen table with my parents and, and my dad explaining to him, look, at, now there, there are certain expenses, and here's what they are. And, there, and, then, and, he, and he showed him the books. And then he said, then there, then there are these three other expenses that are not on the books. And he explained it. And the, uh, the new buyer looked at my dad and said, I'm not pay- making those payments. Uh, you know, I came from Greece to get away from that. I'm not doing that here. So my dad said, OK, but I'm telling you, you know, these are serious people here. So uh, the new fellow bought the bar, opened the bar. Then one night, word went out in the neighborhood that uh, people should gather across the street from the bar. And, and apparently the owner had gotten the word. He closed the bar. Bar was dark. And again, I, this, now this is two or three years later. I'm 10 or 11 with all my friends. We're sitting on the curb across the street from my dad's and mom's tavern. And a car pulls up and Molotov cocktails are thrown mm-hmm. through the windows of the tavern and, and it's blown up. Obviously, the mob wanted, the mafia wanted everyone to know, including the kids, this is what happens when you don't have power. And this is what we do uh, with our power. So, you know, these, are, these, these were pretty early lessons, and I took them seriously. That's one set of experiences. About 10 years later, when I was 18, uh, home from my first year in college, I was reading the newspaper one Sunday, and I read about this group of uh, young uh, Jesuit volunteers working in a African-American community right across uh, the railroad tracks from my community, which was white, ethnic, Italian, Croatian, uh, German, Polish. And one of the volunteers um, 
was a fellow college. I, I, I went on a, on a scholarship to Yale and a fellow um, Yale person who I, I recognized, Ward Gorey was his name. So I called him up and I said, what are you doing over there? What's going on? And he said, well, come on over and, and find out. And, and, and what, what they were doing was working with uh, African-American home buyers who uh, had bought their homes on contract because they could not uh, get mortgages. Uh, African-Americans in those days, 50s and 60s, were redlined, could not get a normal mortgage, bought a home on contract. I don't know if there's a, a similar abusive real estate practice in Australia, but a contract meant that you, if, you, if you missed a payment, if you were late for a payment, if you got sick, you would lose everything. You built no equity until you, you had to make every payment for 20 years on time, in full, or, or you lost everything you put into the house. So this is the only way that African-Americans could get out of tenements and out of public housing. They couldn't get a mortgage. They wanted a house. They wanted a yard. They wanted to uh, uh, be able to have their kids play safely. So they bought these homes on contract. And uh, th this whole uh, experience has been written about uh, uh, really well by three people, James Allen McPherson, the late James Allen McPherson, in a wonderful uh, piece in the Atlantic Monthly in 1974, way back, uh, by Beryl Satter in a terrific book called Family Properties. And then more, most recently, Batana Hisi Coates uh, in his Atlantic Monthly article 50 years after James Allen McPherson's article. He described the organizing that took place of these homeowners and, and the leaders who led it, people like Clyde Ross, Charlie Baker, and uh, the work of a young Jesuit uh, scholastic, Jack McNamara, just passed away last week, actually, at 83, to bring those homeowners together, identify the real estate uh, operators who had cheated them, essentially, and go after restitution. So this was my second big lesson in power, working with those homeowners who were African-American and also exactly like my parents and aunt and uncle and the, and, and, and the people I grew up with and who raised me and who took on these real estate speculators, which meant they had to take on the entire financial community of Chicago, which meant they had to take on the federal government, <laughs> meant they had to take on the Cook County Democratic Party, all of them, all of whom were in cahoots in this scam. And they won. <laughs> it took years. They won $14,000 per homeowner in settlement which was a lot of money then, uh, they won in the short term. And, and, it's, a, and it's, a, it's a victory that, that isn't really appreciated. But they lost in the long term in the sense that all the equity stolen from them and all the equity stolen from the white ethnics who sold their homes at very low prices because they were frightened. And then those same homes were sold at very high prices to African-Americans. That whole process of stripping equity out of homeowners in Chicago, first the white ethnics, then the African-Americans and Hispanics who followed, uh, took a terrible toll on the, on the neighborhood, and the neighborhood essentially continued to decline. So that was my second kind of major lesson in power. And it was interesting. But a different lesson, a different lesson, right? A different lesson. <laughs> you know, a, a yeah. lesson and, oh, okay, there's something people can do. You know, they can bring themselves together, be very 
do very, very in-depth research, really learn and understand the real estate dynamics. So they became experts in real estate and finance, in mortgage banking. And then to and then to stand on their porches when the sheriff came, and they came often to throw them out of their houses because they refused to make some of these contract bases, to stand on their porches and stop that and begin to pull together allies, uh, religious uh, institutions, denominations, faith groups, top rabbi at the, at, at the time, uh, Rabbi Marx, and then the legal community. There was a, a group of, of lawyers, many of them Catholic, but a mix of Catholic and Protestant and Jewish lawyers who were so offended by what these leaders described that they they donated thousands of hours of free legal time and 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 it basically brought a court case that led to the settlement that that at least provided some relief to uh, many hundreds of these uh, homeowners. Uh, one postscript to that: thirty years later, right around two thousand and four. When most of these most of the homeowners were long gone, they'd moved to other neighborhoods or moved to the suburbs. God bless them. This fellow Jack McNamara, who had left the priesthood and gotten married and had a number of children, started a business. He decided to have a reunion of the uh, contract buyers league, and three hundred people came. We essentially had an assembly. Thirty years later, uh, led by the leaders who. Who, was, who spearheaded this fight, this campaign, you know, wow. um, uh, 30 years before. It was extraordinary. And, and that was kind of a lesson, too, that when people build power, use power, and have impact, and win, and, 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 and get a reaction, the feeling and the, the, the sense of that and the, the impression that leaves and the pride that they feel lasts a very long time. So I guess that was my second, my second, uh, and there are many, again, many other lessons, uh, uh, you know, and it's common, uh, it's been written about very often. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King came to Chicago uh, in the late 60s, tried to apply the, you know, the tenets and the values of the civil rights movement to Chicago and was beaten, essentially. I mean, both physically, both physically and politically, by the democratic machine and its fronts in the local community. And, and, and I observed that too. This was even earlier as a high school student. I saw what really brave, courageous, unbelievably dignified uh, leaders uh, who were part of the civil rights activity, both Dr. King and, and people I knew in Chicago and my friends and our Jesuit instructors, what happened when they came up against institutionalized power in the form of the democratic machine uh, in Chicago? And uh, so, you know, a lot of a lot of lessons from that period. I guess the third story is uh, when I began, when I came to New York, my wife and I moved to New York in 1980, and I, I began as lead organizer of East Brooklyn Congregations, uh, which was a neighborhood very much like any devastated inner city neighborhood in, in the U.S. And, and unfortunately around the world, I brought to that experience kind of the impressions and the lessons 
from my upbringing and uh, my volunteer experience uh, during college, and then had the training and support and in-depth learning uh, that took place within my organization, the Industrial Areas Foundation. I worked with one of the great organizers of that era at Chambers who succeeded Saul Alinsky as head of the IF. So I, I, I was able to bring to to the East Brooklyn experience, you know, kind of that, all that um, uh, experience and all that substance, which I was very lucky to have. And so I knew we were up against, uh, you know, very, very long odds, very difficult circumstances. But I also knew that if we organized effectively, if we did our power analysis, um, if we if we established great depth of leadership in, in, in that community, that we could have, you know, very, very serious impact. And, and we did. And we were able to uh, in a way, this is kind of the the flip side of the the west side of Chicago experience. We were able to fundamentally rebuild a neighborhood that everyone had left for dead. We were able to create equity, uh, now almost $2 billion for the African-American and Hispanic home buyers who bought the 4,500 homes we built there. We were able to rebuild the neighborhood, revitalize it without gentrifying it, contrary to all the so-called wisdom of the uh, the academic classes and the progressive crowds in in New York and elsewhere, and we were able to to sustain that over now uh, a forty year period. So, you know, I saw power used against my parents and their and people like them, totally negatively with great damage and impact. I was able to see uh, African American homeowners. Rally in Chicago and get a get a get a get a victory, a partial victory, and 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 feel the impact of that, and then, you know, was able to uh, apply that to the organizing we did in New York and then around the country and, and and in other places around the world, as you well know. I do know, Mike. We brought you out here to Australia at one point, <laughs> and you've been very helpful in Australia too. Yeah. Well, it's been a it's been one of the joys of the last. Uh, number of years. I, I, I very clearly remember when you and I met just before you left the U.S. to go back to Australia. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. We met in a... Yeah, yeah, I remember in a cafe in the Lower East Side. Uh, in, or something. in Lower East Side. And I remember you telling me that, uh, I said, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And you said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to Australia and I'm going to start an Australian version of the IF. And I, I don't know what I said, but I said to myself, I, I could admit this now. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you did. Um, so, uh, so nice going. Nice going. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes hard things are good things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sometimes it works. Yeah. I want us to sort of break down some of the ideas of organising a little bit more, if, if that's all right, get into the how of how you actually do this change. And I want to start with talking about how, you know, how organising is different. You've mentioned a couple of times that organising is different to the traditional way a progressive might respond to something or an academic might respond to something, I guess, or a service delivery person might respond to something. Right. Break break down for us in a little bit. A little bit, you know, how is organizing different to you know those other ways of responding to the challenges that we might face? 
Yeah, and, and as you know, I, I, I actually use a, a little bit of a, a matrix or a chart to try to do that because I think it's it's a it's a very important question. And it's important to understand the differences. Not to say that organizing superior or the only thing to do or the best thing to do always. It isn't. It's a different culture, and I use culture deliberately. It, it has different a different focus, a different dynamic, a different. I think people are often seen differently. The staff role is different. The tools are different. So, and I contrast it with the two kinds of response that people are most familiar with and, and use the most. And one of those responses is, is a service response when there's a crisis. The other response is a mobilizing response. Those are the two ways, primary ways, that um, I believe people tend to react to a public challenge, a public crisis. And obviously, around the world now, we're in a period where there's an extraordinary amount of mobilizing. So uh, maybe I'll just contrast organizing with mobilizing, at, at, because I think uh, sometimes people say they're organizing, but what they're doing is mobilizing. Doesn't mean it's inferior, but it's different. And I think it's important to know the difference. So in a, in a mobilizing culture, it's often triggered by an urgent crisis or an incident or a killing, or as we've seen. There's a dynamic to it where people respond by calling an emergency meeting or, 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 or setting up a demonstration. There's a bit of a tendency, and we see this a lot, it's not, it's not always, where people are seen as bodies or numbers. I mean, the, the, the volume of people is what's uh, emphasized, how many. There's a lot of reliance on media and social media and mobilizing and technology, not that that's, again, not that any of this is wrong and not that any of this isn't appropriate at times, but uh, these, are the, these are the conditions I see. And, and there's a lot of symbolic activity involved with it. So organizing differs in that the focus is not responding to an urgent crisis, an immediate crisis. It's the focus is building power over a, the long term and power being organized people and organized money. So in, in 1980 in Brooklyn, when I arrived there, people, people might remember that New York had nearly gone bankrupt in 1976 or so. The city was in sharp decline. Population was dropping. It would go from a little over 8 million to under 7 million to 7 million within about 10 or 12 years. So there were crises. Abandoned buildings were being abandoned. Arson was prevalent. And there were, there were people mobilizing to respond to those crises. God bless them. But that's not what the organizing was built to do. The organizing was built with all those crises there and going on to try to set aside time and space to build a base of power that would be able to operate very effectively at a very high level for a very long time. So organizing the dynamic is not to call a meeting or a demonstration or a, a large gathering all the time. The, the, the dynamic is kind of a process of relating, building relationships, leader to leader, institution to institution, a, a lot of learning, a lot of training of leaders. How, does, how do things really work? 
How does housing really get built? How do, uh, how, how do we get public housing improved effectively? Who really makes decisions uh, in the community? If it's not the community board or the city council pe- person or the state legislator, who does it? And how does it work? And, and how can we get into the big power game, not get shunted off into bureaucratic processes that don't lead anywhere? So, so there's relating and there's learning, and then there's very effective targeted action in organizing. In organizing, people are seen as leaders or potential leaders. They're not bodies. They're not numbers. The goal isn't to get 10,000 people who don't know one another and can't follow up and won't be there tomorrow. The goal is to get 10,000 people who are in relationship with one another, who, who, who work together, who go through training together, who, who, and who are able to follow up next week, next month, next year, and, and onward. And so the staff role, as I described right at the, get, at the start of this, is to look for those leaders, engage those leaders, train those leaders agitate those leaders, and support those leaders. And and the tools in organizing are not primarily, we use some of them, social media or technology. The tools are are the four uh, four things that we practice. One is individual meetings. Two is teaching and training. Three is ongoing power analysis. And four is action and evaluation. in some cases, you know, mobilizing is the right response. And in some cases, service is the right response. So an example I use, as we're talking, Amanda, if I heard a, a loud crash out in front of my house and, the, and a screeching of tires, uh, I, I wouldn't uh, call for a call a meeting or build an organization. I'd, uh, I'd ask you to, to excuse me for a minute so that I could go out and, and provide some service to someone who may have been injured or hurt uh, or upset by this incident. So I, I, in, that, in, in a case of that, in that case, a service response is the right <laughs> response. If in the course of this 45 minutes or so, that happened three times, I think about calling a, a, a meeting of my block, all my neighbors, and, and saying, hey, what's going on in this street? How come we're having accidents uh, several times a night? And I we mobilize a little bit and pull together and and try to get a, the town or the, the city to respond. If those kinds of accidents were happening all over East Brooklyn and the South Bronx and Upper Manhattan and Queens, as they did years ago, then the right response, we believe, wouldn't be a service response, and it wouldn't be a mobilizing response. The right response would be to reach out to all the institutions in those communities pull together a meeting of leaders, do a lot of research about traffic patterns and, and which neighborhoods get the stop signs and speed bumps and pedestrian safety uh, designations, and then identify the city agency that makes those decisions and then, make, and then go after them, essentially. Make sure that uh, communities, uh, African-American, Hispanic, Asian communities are treated with the same kind of care and safety as, as wealthier communities. I mean, this actually happened uh, some years ago in New York. So, so in that case, you'd use an organizing approach and, and you do that kind of research that, and, and kind of build that kind of knowledge base that your leaders could then use with the media, with public officials and others. 
And so one of the things that's one of the other features that I certainly that I found most interesting when I came across the Industrial Areas Foundation all those years ago was that you always describe yourself as broad-based organizing. You know, the idea that right. when you're working in a space, it's about working across diversity, working with unusual suspects, working with people who would not normally work together or be in relationship with each other. And often that's within a city, it doesn't have to be within a city, but you know, like it's 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 building this intentional diversity. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Like why is the diversity and building relationships with people who are different to you so important? One reason is, a big reason is, because people enjoy building relationships across boundaries, race, religion, faith, gender, orientation, we found that one one of the benefits, one of the, one thing that attracts people to organizing is that they find themselves in rooms with other leaders whom they've never seen other than maybe on television. So in, we're building a new, we're rebuilding an organization in the borough of Queens, which is an area of almost 2 million people here in New York, one of the boroughs. And, and we started there uh, more than 40 years ago. But the Queens of today is very different than the Queens of 40 years ago. Muslim leaders, uh, Hindu leaders, uh, Asian and South Asian communities, uh, Bangladeshi communities. So there's this incredible new mix of people who are now part of the fabric of Queens, but almost never come together very often. So part of the part of the payoff, part of the benefit of being part of this new organizing effort uh, there is you are meeting people who are very different from you, but who share your your physical space, your neighbor, your larger neighborhood, your borough, and who and then whom you find have so many of the same dreams and ideals and hopes and visions. So p- part of part of it is pe- because it's exciting to people, and it's interesting to people, and it, it engages people, and. You don't have to be in action all the time because the quality of those relationships and the the fabric of those relationships is one of the things that sustains people in a very you know in a very long uh, organizational uh, uh, time frame. So part of it is for that reason. Uh, people find it interesting and fun and challenging and curious and. Uh, and, and positive. The second reason is it blocks the natural tendency of other power institutions to to divide a community. So let's say we have this traffic problem in an African American community, and we went to the traffic uh, transit department, transportation department of New York, and said we wanted uh, you know more uh, street signs and speed bumps and pedestrian safety uh, measures. And the, the commissioner might say, "Well, we can't do that for you because we don't. We can't do it for the Asian community, and we can't do it for the Hispanic community. We can't do it for the Hindu community. So, so we just can't do it for you." But when you go in with all those communities, and they all either need some of the same improvements, or they are all there to back the African American community, or, or whichever community has the most need. 
then you t- you strip away the rationale that if we can't do it for everybody, which is usually not even true, we can't do it for you. And you make, you know, you just, you, you, you increase your leverage when you're uh, negotiating uh, with other power centers. So th- that's the pragmatic, the pragmatic reason is it gives you a better shot at, at impact and change. Um, now, it's also true that it puts pressure on an organization that people have to sort out their feelings or impressions or stereotypes, and they have to work through some of those things internally. And uh, but but that's all that's all to the good in the long run. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it takes time, but it's all to the good. So I I, I don't know. I think that's. Uh, uh, you know that's the key to why we when we say broad based we we mean broad based and we mean engaging everyone. And I guess the last reason is once you start one of we start one of our organizations, people who are opposed to it or trying to undermine it will say, "Well, how come you don't have this group or that group? Why did you exclude them?" And so you know one one thing we say truthfully is, "Well, we excluded no one." We reached out to everyone. Now, not everyone joined and not everyone, you know, there's no obligation, but uh, uh, there was there was no attempt to exclude or to narrow, just the opposite. Standing for the whole. I yep. remember reading that when I was just kicking off this organizing. Yep. Yeah, it's quite powerful. So before we leave this conversation, Mike, you know, I feel it's a miss of me to not, I feel like there's an elephant in the room whenever you're talking to an American, what is it, you know, six weeks, eight weeks out from the next presidential election. And it's sort of warming up. It's extremely important for the world. It's not just, it's obviously for America, but I think it's going to impact everyone and everything, right? right, no matter where you are. I'm interested in whether you have any hot takes for us. You know, you're an organiser, you're in a relationship with this different network of people who maybe aren't in the press but certainly have a set of experiences that are incredibly important and valuable for understanding political life. I'm wondering if there's any sort of, if there's a lesson or two that you want to share, thoughts that you think about about what's going to happen or or what's happening now. Well, um, can I share a worry? Please. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure. Share whatever you feel you can. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, you know, every year the Gallup uh, poll people here, uh, they poll Americans and they ask people, how, how do they self-identify, uh, liberal, moderate, or conservative? And pretty much every year, this has been going on almost 30 years, it, it breaks out uh, something like this. Americans self-describe as about 35, 36% conservative, about... 35% moderate, uh, uh, I'll quibble with the moderate, I think it's mixed, is the actual, the right term, and about 27, 28, 29% liberal. And so maybe this is not a worry. Maybe this, maybe people will be somewhat heartened to hear this. So the notion that everything is uniquely polarized or recently polarized, I believe is wrong. Not true. It's been it's been div- mixed, divided in this way for a very long time. What is true is that the extremes on both ends are much more extreme, but the mix 
of, let's say, 90% of the electorate has been relatively stable over a very long period of time. So what that says to me as an organizer, and, and you know, Amanda, we are in the U.S., we are nonpartisan. We uh, don't back candidates. We, we don't take part in party activities. We are in the third. We are primarily and fully in the third sector. Uh, but we, we obviously observe and, and, and know what's going on in, in the partisan world. But what, what, what this says to me is that um, the party that wins is the party that figures out how to peel off a percentage of that middle group, that mixed middle, and swing that, that group either left or right. And there have been a lot of studies and a lot of uh, uh, discussion of there might be 150 or 200 counties out of over 3,000 in the United States in about six states, which really tell the tale. In other words, if you, get, if you, if you secure pluralities in, in, in most of those counties, if you win those states, you win the national, you win the election. And if you don't, you lose. So the worry is that the Democrats in this election seem to have decided not to do any relational door-to-door work in those in, anywhere, whereas the Republicans are very uh, much uh, present going door-to-door, working in communities, etc. So the worry is that the Democrats will not do their homework in those key 150 or so counties. That's about 5% of the counties in the, in the U.S. And if they don't, um, they could jeopardize what should be a positive election for them. So we can kibitz, uh, we can write op-eds, we can nudge, uh, we, we do all that. But the party has to, uh, the Democratic Party has to decide it's going to go all out in those counties if they're going to secure a victory. So that's that's my uh, you know that's my my take and my worry. If if they if they come to their senses, uh, they got about forty nine days to do that, and they go to work. Uh, my view is they're going to win. If they rely on social media and say and stay distant. I'm I'm very worried. Yeah. Oh God, I think we're all nervous. My goodness, I'm. Um, I think we're there. We're all nervous. And what is interesting in what you're saying is that the the relational tools that you use to build powerful organizations in communities that are nonpartisan, those tools are there's a universality in some respects to those tools, and that they are powerful right. in other sectors as well. Uh, one of our. Uh... Uh, former staff people, Dave Fleischer, whom you may know, Amanda, perfected uh, the process of deep canvassing, door-to-door work uh, that really uh, gets a, a, a very positive result. And and Dave is no longer with us because he decided to, to work in the partisan space, but he and, and, and the team that he's trained is hard at work in uh, some of those counties that I worry about. Uh, and so I said to a friend today, Dave Fleischer might save America. (laughs) So (laughs) that's my hope of the evening. Let's hope he does. That would be lovely. That would be great. Yeah, I I think others would be happy too, right? 
Yeah, I think we'd all celebrate if America could be saved in this moment. Cool. So look, I'm just going to ask for a, this is a final reflection as we close the interview. And I also want to mention to our listeners that the Mike's mentioned a bunch, a, a table, and he's also mentioned some articles. I'm going to, Mike, I'm wondering, can we get some some of those references? I might put them on the website so people, if they want to follow up, sure. can read further. Um, and then just a final thought is just, you know, you've organised for a stupendously impressive amount of time and I'm wondering you know if you're, you're sitting here now having having done so much work if you were to whisper in the ear of the young Mike Geekin about the most important lesson uh, that he needed as an organizer what what lesson or reflection would you share well that's a great question um I, I you know I, I I would just say shake the dust from your feet when, when something's not working, when you're in a place where you can't find leaders, you're not able to find the, the kind of leadership and build the kind of team that can create real impact, then move along. Get to the place where you can. Because my experience and my, my belief is the country is full of people. And the world. And the world, yeah. Not just not just the country, your country, all the countries. <laughs> oh, yeah, everywhere. Leaders are everywhere, and uh, talent is everywhere, and people who are willing to to relate and learn and act together are everywhere. So go find them and get moving. I guess I wish I had done that a few times over the years, a little sooner. But anyway, so that'd be my advice. Yeah, that's helpful advice, I reckon, because sometimes we chase our losses rather than change direction. And yeah, right. we could do right. a little bit more of the the shifting and changing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are uh, sometimes organizers can be a little too patient, a little too dutiful. You know, it's a good quality, but uh, you know, it can also, you know, the old saying: we all organizing is disorganizing and reorganizing. Sometimes you have to disorganize yourself and move on. I like it. <laughs> like it's a great it's a great one for anyone who's listening okay mike thank you for being with us thank you for sharing uh everything about organizing and your stories but also your uh trepidation about the moment that we're in in history okay well it's been great to be with you best wishes there yeah thank you thank you all right Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating and our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. We have a weekly training program called the Changemakers Organising School, a great place for anyone to drop in or come in every week for training about all things community organising. All the details and registration are on our website.